Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. We recorded the main part of this podcast on Sunday, September 25th. It's a podcast about Florida and about a series of linked stories that are set in Florida and that has characters who are dealing with the after effects of Hurricane Andrew and writing that thinks a lot about immigration, real estate and Miami's multi-ethnic diversity. But we're recording this opening on Wednesday night, September 28th, and by now it seems clear that significant parts of Florida are getting hit very, very hard by Hurricane Ian. And so before we start, we want to send our sympathy and concern to the people in Florida who are trying to ride out this disaster. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're worried about and watching the same video that I'm sure everyone else is watching about that storm that's coming, and we have no idea what's going to happen overnight tonight, and that's the most important thing right now. That does not mean that we don't have quibbles with politicians in Florida. Our original news peg for this podcast before the hurricane arrived was Governor Ron DeSantis's decision to fly around 50 immigrants from Venezuela, mostly asylum seekers who were in the country legally, from San Antonio, Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Good way to prepare for a hurricane. And then he got them to go by allegedly promising that they would get expedited work papers. That's why we originally wanted to do an episode about Florida, and that's why we looked up a fantastic writer from Florida who can talk to us about what it's like to live there as a second-generation immigrant and talk to us about their writing on this exact subject. And so this episode is a case of serendipity. No podcast obviously can ameliorate the devastation of a hurricane, but talking to a writer whose new book is both a critique and celebration of Florida and specifically Miami seems like the best thing that we can be doing today. And for that, we're pleased to welcome Jonathan Escoffery to the show. Jonathan is the author of the linked story collection, If I Survive You, a New York Times editor's choice, a National Book Award nominee, and an indie national bestseller. In North America, If I Survive You is published by MCD at FSG and McClelland and Stewart. He's the winner of the Paris Review's 2020 Plimpton Prize for Fiction and is the recipient of a 2020 National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship in Prose. His stories have been in the Paris Review, Oprah Daily, Electric Literature, Ziziva, Agni, Pleiades, American Short Fiction, Prairie Schooner, Passages North, and elsewhere. He is also a graduate of the University of Minnesota's Creative Writing MFA program in fiction and attends the University of Southern California's PhD in Creative Writing and Literature program as a provost fellow. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, Your book that Sugi was just talking about, If I Survive You, uh, centers on a couple, Topper and Sonia, who immigrate from Kingston, Jamaica to Miami. In the 70s, they have two sons, Trelawney and Delano. Am I saying their names right? Because I've just been reading their names. (laughs) Right, right. Trelawney and Delano. Okay. Um, And they are growing up in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Uh, The first story in this link collection focuses on Trelawney's sense that the people around him don't know how to categorize him. I wonder if you could, just to start off this discussion, if you could read to us from that piece. Sure, um, and just to set up Influx and the part that I'll be reading from, Influx begins with nine-year-old Trelawney, the American-born son in this Jamaican family, and he's being asked the question, what are you? 
And when he repeats this question to his mother, she provides a murky rundown of Chelani's uh, great-grandparents without ever mentioning how he's supposed to identify racially or otherwise. And she suggests that Chelani tell people, um, quote, you're a little of this and a little of that, which might be sufficient in a more ideal world but it is an insufficient answer in reality. And uh, Trelawney's continually accosted by versions of this question, what are you, where are you from? And uh, he starts to internalize this in a sense, and he chases an answer throughout high school and throughout college. And this is where I'll pick up from in the actual text. A couple of months before you graduate, Before you load up your Dodge Raider and drive the 1,811 miles back to Miami to figure things out, you decide to take a DNA test. You spit into a tube, mail it, and await the findings. Six weeks later, an email notifies you that your results are ready. You log into your account, and a box pops up stating that you are 38% West African. This is your highest percentage from any single region, as large and varied as this region may be. This feels right, or at least it doesn't strike you as particularly wrong, given your Jamaican parentage and the history behind the populating of the island. But when you click to pull up your complete ancestral breakdown, the top of the page shows 59.9% European ancestry, British mostly, with the smaller, broken-down percentages spanning the continent. The bottom of the page shows 1% Middle Eastern ancestry. The remainder is inconclusive. Holy shit, Katie says from beside you on the couch. She backs away so she can take you in anew. I'm dating a white boy. You, Negro, are mostly European. You're still black, Katie says, turning serious. This is the first concrete data you've been provided about your race, though it's actually closer to your ancestral ethnic makeup. Race, you know, is a social construct. It can't be measured because it doesn't exist, biologically. If the results had shown 99% European and 1% African, as long as your skin held some degree of brown and your hair still coiled, you'd still be black and only black by American standards. You think of the times you're asked to check a box on the census or an intake form at a doctor's office or a teaching evaluation at the end of the semester. It's one of the few times when you're asked to self-identify by an entity incapable of correcting or denying you, at least in that moment. You may now scrawl a little of this and a little of that beside the other box, but this new information doesn't mean you should check black and white. First, the entire project of whiteness means to the exclusion of and. Second, you are not the progeny of a black person and a white person. You are the offspring of two others. You're brown, but not that kind, and not that kind, and not that kind. Black means expansive enough, inclusive enough, to contain the whole of your European ancestry, to bear the whole of the continent, your French, your Italian, your Irish, your English, and black, your black, your black, then why do they keep asking? 
You'd hoped that receiving scientific evidence would make easier the process of claiming one thing or embracing being multitudinous, would empower you to say, regardless of what you see me as, I'm this, to say, I'm this, regardless of what city or country or company I'm in. But nothing's changed. Not even the testing of your DNA can help you answer in one irrefutable word, what are you? So people aren't really going for the Walt Whitman, I contain multitudes answer to this uh, question that, that this character <laughs> keeps getting asked. Um, can you talk a little bit in general about the process of quote unquote finding a category in American life or maybe in human life in general? When Ron DeSantis, who we were talking about at the top of the show, flies Venezuelan asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyards, he's, he's engaging in a classic and time-tested way that white politicians have always demagogued race. Those are the others who don't belong. And yet, as the story makes clear, uh, white Americans aren't the only ones who are buying into this need to categorize who is us and who is them. Yeah, well, one way that I think of this phenomenon of um, this need to categorize people is that as complex as human beings might be, people really want simple methods of sifting information. And if they can apply their preconceived notions to whole groups of people, often by placing these populations on either side of a binary, so good or bad, American or foreigner, uh, us or them, they won't have to actually do the work of approaching individuals as human beings full of limitless potential. And that potential might include the potential to add value to your life, or that potential could be to let you down in one way or another. And um, for a character like Chilani, he upsets people in part because his multiracial heritage along with his second generation immigrant background is harder for people to categorize. And unfortunately for Chilani, he begins to internalize this need to find a neat category for himself because he feels forced to see himself through the eyes of others. So the book... Um in many of its choices and, and in its structure as a collection, it, it refuses to categorize these characters, even as characters seek, seek categories for each other. But, um, you know, for instance, the father topper acts at times in a, in a dismissive manner to Trelawney calls him defective. He does some clearly problematic things in his marriage and in some collections, he would be completely vilified and he gets a fair amount of that here, but he also gets a story from his point of view um, which is told as sympathetically as possible. And I this is um, a story that I think maybe some of our listeners have already read because it was the one that also won the Plimpton Prize. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about Under the Aki Tree. Yeah, so with that story, I wanted to explore the divide that sometimes occurs between the generation who makes the difficult decision to up and move their family from you know, everything they know in uh, their country of birth and emigrate to a place like the U.S. And, um, at, you know, at times, especially, uh, well, I wanted to explore the other uh, generation, the following subsequent generation that might be born in the U.S. And, um, you know, for a lot of us uh, black children of immigrants, um, we might feel somewhat excluded from that full citizenship or that, you know, um, ability to count ourselves as the ideal uh, American children. 
And so for some of us, there's this, uh, what occurs is there's this phenomenon of idealizing a, a kind of homeland that maybe never actually existed. And so I wanted to have that conversation between Topper, the, you know, at least one half of the decision-making party who decided to leave Jamaica and who winds up in, a, in Miami in particular, and Miami-born Trelawney who believes that, at least for a time, that his parents have made a massive mistake in moving the family from Jamaica. And, I, you know, I, I think what I came to um, realize is that that would be a very painful thing for Topper to hear, that, you know, even though he's been able to rebuild his life in America and he's been able to rebuild or, or build, I should say, a, a business, but rebuild in a sense his uh, middle class status that he held at one point in Jamaica um, and rebuild that in, in the U.S. And um, to have his son say that, you know, all of this really was a bad decision. You gave up all this stuff and did all this hard work. I wish you hadn't. <laughs> Right. I wish you hadn't, and things would have been better had you not done any of that stuff. And, you know, that's, of course, that's a difficult thing for Topper to hear. And, you know, he responds in a way that um, he, he shouldn't, by my estimation. He, he calls Jelani defective, and he says he never would have made it in uh, Jamaica had they, had they actually stayed there. And, you know, Jelani responds rather violent, violently, and... Um, uh, their already kind of fraught father-son relationship um, takes a, an even further downward spiral. And um, we see Trelawney having to live through the consequences of, of that action um, as he lives, in his, lives out of his car and has to take some, well, at least chooses to take some really odd jobs. I thought, Sugi, about um, Lance Matthew Chang's uh, book, uh, The Brothers Chow. I was thinking like, it seems to me like in, in, in Jonathan, in your book and, and in that book, and maybe in some other books, there's starting to become a literature of this dialogue between first and second generation families, right? And, and, the, and the intergenerational interplay of the way that immigration has affected them and the way that they think about that. I wonder if you are noticing that as a phenomenon that's just sort of emerging in our literature. In a sense, um, I'm trying to think of specific uh, examples of this. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I grew up, um, I shouldn't say I grew up, but I, I, in college, I remember reading, um, oftentimes it was Latina authors who were, were kind of talking about this uh, experience, especially with Cuban Americans who were looking back at the uh, movement from Cuba to a place like Miami and often the next generation is, is trying to sort out exactly what this all meant and how they are to kind of exist in their um, Americanness and for me I wanted to ex ex as someone who's you know lived that second generation immigrant experience uh, with my Jamaican parents, I, I it's, it's just something that I'm very interested in exploring and I wanted to do that for uh, for this family of Jamaicans in a sense. And I mean, I, I think in particular with a place like Miami, um, I, I don't know if, if immigration and, you know, obviously I, I, I'm using the word immigration that sometimes it's, it's asylum seekers, it's um, 
people who identified as, as uh, refugees. But because it's such a multicultural city, um, oftentimes with uh, it's made up of this these Caribbean and um, the the following generation, these Caribbean immigrants and and their children. I think there's less of an attitude that one needs to very quickly assimilate into some kind of mainstream American identity. And at times it seems like you're actually rewarded for being able to carry on the traditions of, of, of the family. And I think um, we, you know, in some, in some places we might say, uh, I, I'll have this conversation with people and they're saying, um, don't worry, like you're, you know, you're American. And, and I think what they mean to say is like, yes, you belong here. But when you grow up in Miami, American is not necessarily the better thing to be. Uh, so people, <laughs> you know what I mean? So like the assumption is not like, like, no, no, like you don't, you don't have to rush my Americanness. Like we are very happy to hang on to our Jamaicanness or our Cubanness or, 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 or whatever it is. And that's, that seemed to be the attitude of, of a lot of my friends, I'll, I'll put it that way. And so um, I, I think for a lot of us, because we hang on to those, uh, you know, that aspect of our identities, I think there's also this kind of, there's this realization that the immigrant story doesn't just move in the one direction of, you know, coming, mm-hmm. coming to the U.S. There's also, oftentimes for the following generation, this kind of longing for, um, full acceptance in that that kind of other culture and you know in my case i'm talking about jamaican so we have a chelani who's imagining you know if if he's not the ideal of all american boy <laughs> because he he doesn't have the blonde hair blue eyes from the commercials i, I won't name any name brands but, but but you know from the ads um then maybe he can be the ideal jamaican and uh, you know, unfortunately, what he finds is he's not quite able to, uh, I don't know, be embraced as as the ideal Jamaican either, and and so he he remains searching in that way. Sugi, I just want to say real quick, I have to. I think I messed up Sam's book title, so I'm going to just say right here, we called the episode "The Brothers Chow" because it's a reference to the Brothers Karamazov, but the actual name of the book is "The Family Chow." Is that what? It, what did I say? I actually I don't remember. Family <laughs> I was thinking about the idea. All right. Well, just in case I said it wrong, we're going to have this part in there to say that I remember that I that the actual name well, of the so book is Family Chow. Well, so I was also thinking ahead. about Sam's book, um, but Sam was in particular, I think, interested in writing about people who were the children of, like, the children of immigrants. Not the children of immigrants, but um, and but I think, like, your book and her book, and we also had Jamil... Uh, John Kochayan. And these books all have these interesting things in common. And one of them, I feel like, is this interrogation of immigration as it exists in relation to masculinity. Um, and I think that, like, rightly, a lot of the time, the conversation around kind of culture bearing, as it's sometimes called, is centered on um, the pressure that that puts on women or femme presenting people. And here, I think we see, like, this really accurate and like just really um, like this really powerful portrayal of the pressure that it puts on on men and the pressure it puts on masculinity and, and intergenerational ties of masculinity 
to feel like, um, you know, in, in what direction is, is the, am I, am I moving in the right direction? Did I go to the right country? <laughs> like, am I presenting with the right kind of masculinity? And, um, am I assimilating to the correct degree, which, um, I think is, that seems to me like really interesting terrain. And, and we had a little bit of conversation with Sam about, um, Asian American masculinity. And I wonder if you can, I'm a little bit stealing a, a question of Whitney's here, but, um, like an, 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 okay. No, yeah. An important through right line in that. this book is, is brotherhood. Um, in addition, you know, um, the brothers are constantly trying to figure each other out through these stories. And we've been talking about categories and yet these, I mean, siblings are as close as you can get. And I think, especially when you're the kids of immigrants, you know, I'm, I'm the child of immigrants and my brother and I speak like a, like a very particular language. Um, that is so distinctive and weird that someday I will try to put it on the page, but I haven't done that yet. And I loved reading this version. Um, and yet they couldn't be more different. And I wonder if you can talk about writing these brothers. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I was smiling for a second because I was remembering that my brother and I decided to come up with our own language at, at some point in our childhood. And it's like a, um, it's how many immigrant we, kids? <laughs> Right, right. And we, we, we wrote up a dictionary and we buried it in the backyard somewhere. <gasps> That's awesome. and, um, you know, I remember nothing from that, but now I kind of want to go see if I can excavate that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I was interested in a sense in building these brothers out in contrast to one another. Delano, he has, in a sense, the, the confidence. I mean, one might imagine that as brothers um, with you know, with the same parents, they, they might look enough alike that perhaps Delano would be asked similar questions. What, you know, what are you? But he has that kind of confidence where, you know, when Trelawney at, at a time in the book says, well, I'll decide I'm going to answer this question by saying I'm Jamaican and maybe that will put the question to, to, to bed. And um, what people tend to respond with is like, oh, well, you don't sound Jamaican. And there's also the fact that he wasn't born in Jamaica and he's the one person in his family who, who wasn't. And so I think that leaves him a little bit on shaky ground where Delano actually was born in Jamaica and does have memories of Jamaica and does speak a little bit more with uh, Jamaican accents. And, and, you know, he I, I think he moves forward with a kind of confidence that um, Trelawney doesn't. I, uh, one of Trelawney's perhaps biggest flaws is that he's just so observant and he's so interested in kind of cataloging all of what all of the um issues that he has to face but he's he's it's not that he doesn't take action but he it's almost like he has to articulate all of the problems before he can take action whereas i i saw delano um as this character who's just gonna go 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 He's, again, less interested in taking part in those national conversations about race and ethnicity and identity. And he just wants to go out and, um, you know, start his own business. And for a time, it, 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 it succeeds until it doesn't. And, you know, bigger forces are at play with the uh, 2008 recession and his, um, his business falls apart. And he, I think... The way I was looking at it is for the first time, he has to know what it's like to, to fail and, and fail hard. And, um, you know, a lot of where you're talking about the, the question of masculinity, I think um, t 
Topper as the as the father. He someone who saw himself as an artist until his father said, "Well, you can be an artist who I'm going to put out of my house, or you're going to take part in my construction business." And um, Topper then, you know, kind of builds up his own business as a as a contractor in in the U.S. And that's the thing that works for him. And so, you know, his son. Uh, starting his own tree service, it's it's kind of still in line. It's kind of still holding that, um, you know, one that that more masculine work, but also uh, thinking of what has actually been able to to pay the bills. It's something that he can get behind, and so there's this moment of um, kind of consideration on Trelawney's point, part where uh, he he asks his father, you know, how is it that you loaned Delano money to start his business and you haven't put any kind of money into my education? Um, and we find that Trelawney is is saddled down with with student debt for for part of the book, and um, and I think it's it's this thing where he Trelawney's the one who actually wants to, um, even though all of the the male figures in the book they all have these artistic in- inclinations. They, they they walk away from those um, those desires for, for for a time I'll say you know Delano wants to be a musician but he's he's leaning into the tree service and um, it, it, Delano's able to get his father's support by by doing so um, I think Trelawney is probably not going to get uh, that much support either way but he you know he wants to be a writer and um, you know that that's just another kind of mark against them in, in his father's eyes. But, you know, from the artistic perspective, you know, Delano as that go, go, go character, that's one reason I wanted to write his story told in the present tense, whereas Shalani's stories are often told, you know, once he gets a first person uh, perspective, but he's got a couple of stories in the second person because he's, in a sense, he's trying to understand by telling himself the story of his, of his life, like, how is it you have um, been able to exist as this person who um again is defying categorization um perhaps in a way that is 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 not benefiting you at 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 all but at other times you know um as a as a a lighter-skinned black person he he also has to contend with um having that privilege in a sense but you know building these characters out uh, um against one another I, i think was uh it, it helped me define them and, and think about you know these smaller uh, these these smaller ways that people can move through the world and, and still have their privilege um, and be so thinking of you know in, in the final story Chelani calls um, Delano entitled and I think a lot of people would say what do you you know what do you mean by entitled he's this down and out character in a sense he's an immigrant he's black in america he doesn't have money you know how is he entitled but he's you know he's the one who inherited his father's blue eyes and he's the one who's gotten he's been shown more family love and um he feels he's entitled to the family home as the firstborn and and things seem to be going that way and so for from chelani's perspective uh his brother is entitled and I, you know, I wanted to pick out these little nuances because sometimes um, from the outside, when I say the outside looking in, I mean for people who maybe haven't been marginalized and minoritized, um, you might just think of these like very flat immigrant black characters. But for me, you know, they're full, they're fully formed humans in my head. And, you know, they're, they've, they've got their, 
they've got their flaws and they've got their their nuances and and I wanted to bring all of that to the page. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And I think, you know, you're talking a little bit about money and that's one of the things that I think um like the story does well, like show that the shifting economic situations you mentioned earlier. I mean, you talked about the tree service, um, student debt. And then you mentioned earlier, there's a moment where Trelawney is living out of his car. And we did a show with um, Emmy Nittfeld about housing insecurity. And there are two stories in the collection that touch on that. There's there's odd jobs and independent living. And you write about Topper and Sonia's house being destroyed by Hurricane Andrew and I wonder, like, there's this sort of, yeah, displacement is a theme and, and which seems also a particularly Florida thing. Yeah, it's, it's big um, in the Floridian context. I'm living in California these days, so it's, it's very big in the Californian context as well. Um, you know, in Odd Jobs, we see Chalani picking up this, uh, this kind of gig because he he's kind of living out of his car and he's starving and he's unemployed in independent living though he he's got a full-time job and he still can't quite afford to uh you know get an apartment and, and pay rent and um when i was living down in long beach i would walk from the the metro station to my apartment and i would pass all these people who seemed to be you know going out and getting getting ready for work it, it, it seemed apparent that they were all employed but um, I'm talking about dozens of people living out of their their vehicles, and um, I think, you know, in major cities, it seems to be moving that way. Uh, getting back to your getting back to your your question about you know Florida and in particular South Florida, um, in the last I'll, I'll say three years, rents have been you know not just doubling but tripling on people, um, and it isn't a state that is probably you know. In the, in the foreseeable future, the way things have gone, it's not a place where there are any protections for renters. And um, so, there, so, there are, so there aren't any caps on how much you can raise the rent. And people continue to be pushed out of, um, you know, different neighborhoods, certainly, but out of Miami in general. I, I, you know, I talk to people a lot who uh, they now live north of the city. They live in Broward County and in, in, in cheaper cities um, that are also getting too expensive as, as well. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think it's a it's a huge issue in, in, in South Florida in, in particular. But then there's also, you know, the sense of impermanence that uh, climate change and climate disaster is is also uh, bringing on. You know, if you if you buy in Miami, um, you you certainly should be aware that there are, you know, there's the threat of rising tides and um you know, in the book, I, I, I do talk about that, particularly in the, the final story that they have these lunar tides where, you know, the, the city could be in drought, but um, the tides come up and they flood um, much of Miami Beach. They flood much of downtown Miami. And um, what's happening is that now in places like Little Haiti, which used to be, um, uh, you know, it's a historically Haitian area that... Uh, people uh, from outside of those groups would um, not necessarily be interested in moving into those areas. Now they've discovered that that is where the highest elevation in Miami is 
And so now this is where gentrification has moved. Um, it set its eyes on that, right? Because now the wealthy want to uh, kind of take over that um, historically black, historically Haitian area and start building condos for the wealthy so that they can be, I guess, the last to go when the city finally is, is, is sunk. And we should say that Tropical <laughs> Storm then, Ian is yeah. heading toward Florida right now. It's supposed to be a Category right 4 now. hurricane. so. By the time this episode drops, we'll know a lot more about that. We're recording on a Sunday. Um, today's the 25th, I believe. Um, so here come the politics. Um, 20 years ago, John Judas and Rui Teixeira published a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. Its arguments are complicated and nuanced, and we're going to link to a good piece about that book by New York Times' Nate Cohn in our show notes that came out recently, but at least part of what they were saying was that demographic change and the increasing diversity of America should help Democrats at the ballot box. Florida seems to be a prime example of this kind of change. I mean, the multi-ethnic diversity is of that, of that um, place, and particularly Miami, is, is on display in your book. Um, but why can't Democrats win in Florida? If you know, uh, Why are Marco Rubio and Rick Scott the state senators? Why is DeSantis the governor? Why did Trump win this state? Yeah, I mean... One thing that is a bit frustrating is that um, what what you'll find in a place like South Florida and, and you know Miami being the city that I'm, I'm more familiar with is that Democrats can be at times associated with uh, socialism and socialists and for you know some of the younger generations in Miami you know we might think we might hear socialism oh. Canada, oh, um, you know, England, um, maybe like national health care. And, and we might think of European countries that have um, support systems for their uh, citizens. And, you know, there may be, you know, free or low cost education, depending on where we're looking at. But for a lot of people in South Florida, when you hear socialism, you're thinking of Fidel Castro and you're thinking of property being seized and you're thinking of um, you know, businesses being seized and you're thinking of whole lives being kind of ruined by these um, uh, dictators. And so uh, you know, for, for a lot of people in South Florida, um, I don't think Democrats have been very good at, or, or, or maybe I should say, Republicans have been very good at um, casting the the Democrats in in that kind of light of um, uh, you know people who aren't interested in rewarding hard work and and people who are more interested in seeing uh, the United States turn into one large welfare state um, and that all has to do with you know messaging and um, unfortunately I, I just don't think the Democrat the Democrats really um are it's, it's it's almost like they do understand the nuances and yet they they fail to communicate that they are not that party who's who's here to uh throw you out of your 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 house and um you know take away your business and um you know on the face value i think there's a lot more to it than that but you know just from a, a purely a, a messaging standpoint they they haven't um I, you know, maybe it's a bet that they've made that they they just don't think it's worth getting into those weeds. But you know, when you're when you're in Miami and that you know that is the landscape of of a lot of um, a lot of immigrants who've had a lot of uh, 
bad experiences with with anything having to do with um, you know social safety nets. You know, it's it's, it's a kind of um, triggering uh, 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 phrasing for for a lot of people down there. So, according to NBC News, about fifty five percent of Florida's Cuban American vote went to Trump in twenty twenty, and Trump is as we've talked about repeatedly on the show, no friend to immigrants or to people of color. Um, And we began the podcast talking about how current Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been demagoguing the subject of immigration by sending Venezuelan asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard. Those asylum seekers are fleeing a socialist dictatorship, much like earlier Cuban immigrants did. And the Republican Party used to welcome immigrants like that. Now they don't. You know, you're not Cuban, but your book is aware of and, and comments on the community quite a bit. So can you talk about, and it's not just what do they not see in the Democrats, but what do they see in Trump, DeSantis, and the Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, I I think what a lot of people in the U.S. don't really understand is that um, Cuban-Americans, a lot of people who are grouped into the Latinx category or Latino or Hispanic is that they're they may not actually identify with those categories at all. And so where you're saying, you know, I think this is a a place where a term like POC, that kind of, or BIPOC, those those kind of catch-alls that imagine that we, um, people who, who might fall under those those terms might have similar agendas, don't really understand that a lot of Cuban Americans in Miami in particular see themselves as white and they you know they have not much of a vested interest in um uh associating with uh you know people of color in a, in a sense if you understand how they existed before they came to the u.s or multi-generationally um it it, it would be the same as as asking well you know why are so many white people interested in seeing Trump and DeSantis um, empowered in, in these ways? And um, so I think it's, it's, it's uh, again, it's a place, it's a situation where people aren't necessarily understanding um, the, the cultural landscape of, of South Florida, where, you know, a lot of uh, Cuban Americans in Miami, um, they... They're, they're doing quite well financially and they have their own uh, businesses and, and, and own, own homes, nice homes, and are interested in voting in, in the way that might um, lower their taxes or um, see that they don't have to pay for universal health care for their employees. And, you know, certainly that's not all, all Florida Cuban-Americans, but um, especially I can imagine we, Topper feeling that way. I mean, he's not, he's, he's Jamaican-American, right. but I think that he would, right. that's, it's possible. I can imagine him voting for Trump. He's your character. You can tell me how he votes, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't create the Topper that votes for Trump, but I think that that is a great point when you think about a lot of uh, people who, so 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 taking it uh, away from people who necessarily. Um, uh, I mean, he's me, got his me, own business. He got he's got his yeah. own business. He's interested in protecting that. He he doesn't want to pay more taxes. Mm-hmm. I would assume, um, you know, and he wants right. the freedom to sort of like 
be independent and not have the government mess with his life at all. That sort of seems like his attitude. That's the, the part that I would think that he where he might be attracted in the way that you were talking about uh, other groups being attracted to sort yeah. of that kind of part of the Republican yeah. message in, in Florida. Yeah, I mean, the, the truth is I, I know a lot of Jamaican, <laughs> a lot of Jamaican, uh, particularly, you know, the first gen immigrant who who, you know, packs it up and moves to the U.S. and who's able to find some success here. Absolutely. Um, I think, though, because uh, this is where race often comes into play, where you might find yourself as that if, if you if, in fact, you are a black um, Jamaican immigrant, you you might have to weigh your 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 options in terms of, well, it might be um, it, it, it might and it might and it very well might not be, but it, it may suit your pocket to vote one way but then in terms of these social issues and um a party that is you know the republican party being off the rails with you know basically (laughs) not even denying you know the xenophobia and the racism um you know some people are still going to vote for their pockets and you know if if and and i do and i think you know i i I do know some of those jamaicans but they keep it they keep it a little bit quieter (laughs) right topper is wise Um, to that part also i I, yeah i remember him talking about that stuff well (laughs) well you know socially and again i think this is why it's important to to um create these dynamic characters is that i think for a lot of black immigrants who come to this country whether whether they're jamaican or you know i'll, I'll stick to the jamaicans <laughs> but um yeah i mean there there's that political disconnect where you have a chalani saying you know there's no such thing as a bad neighborhood if there's any crime it's because of white collar greed and it's because of systemic racism and then you have you know the older generation who's like what the hell are you talking about like uh if someone shoots you, they shoot you, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. And um, I, I think there's these different ways of viewing the world, and you know, there's the kind of theoretical, you know, what's the systemic problem, and then there's that more ground level. How are we going to get through, you know, the, the the day without you know getting caught up in what's actually literally going on around us, and so. Um, the problem I see, though, is that for some of those, the older generation is that they may not be taken into consideration what it's going to be like for their children, um, who, especially with black immigrants, like they're, they're not going to neatly be able to just assimilate into society without racism continuing to, to plague them. And so, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a nice sprint to say, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to get caught up in these um, issues of race. Um, I'm just going to keep my head down and work, work, work until I build something. But, you know, unless unless you're not having black children, I suppose, if you're going to, you know, breed out the, the, the blackness from the family line, you're, you're going to have to uh, consider these things. And that's some of the, the the conversation that's the kind of conversation that i'm interested in having on the page and in the fiction and not necessarily um with any uh 
you know, belief that I am answering these questions, but I think we need to have these questions because, you know, I, I, I don't think it's great to just sit back and say, you know, we can never get over these problems. The system, systemic problems are so big, we'll, we'll always be underneath them. But at the same time, um, you know, that conversation needs to, needs to continue to happen um, so that we can figure out what we can actually do to, to you know, get out from underneath these things. Well, Jonathan, um, I think ending with these questions on our minds is a, is a great way to um, send our listeners to go and get your book. Um, we want to remind everyone to go out and pick up a copy of National Book Award nominated If I Survive You, which is out now. And Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your thoughts about this. Uh, thank you so much for having me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>